to be able to worship together. And uh, many of you, we, I know we had the great opportunity to be able to go to the Spring Creek uh, Pole, and what a fun time that was. Thank you for all those who participated and who put it all together, and we're grateful for that. At this time, any of the younger children, they've already beat me to the punch, but they're going, here's your time to be able to go and to be able to hear God's word and to meet with the children. And not all of you can go over and look at the new baby over there. So wait until the message is over. So, okay. I got a, a text message uh, last night saying that um, two of the units here at Eighth Kime were broken down. So if it gets to be about 108, we're all leaving. Okay, I'll just do the benediction and we'll go. But I don't think that's going to happen. They have put it down really low to try to get enough uh, cool air in here, and I think it'll be okay. But let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to have a God like you, who's our creator and sustainer, who loves us and has given us new life in Christ. We thank you, Father, for today that we could come to this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, and that, Father, we can look at a passage that goes almost 2,000 years ago and see that it's still relevant and important today as we look at the issues upon our lives and upon the world in which we live. We ask that you would be with us. Give us ears to hear. Help us to be able to focus on what your good word has taught us. We ask that you be with us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The message this morning that I'm titled is called An Endangered Species, and that's marriage. As many of you know, there's quite of an assault going on in marriage in our culture today. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But what we want to do this morning is look at this issue where part of it is going to deal with marriage, but a big part of it is dealing with the bigger issues that the Apostle Paul has to deal with in the situation that he was experiencing there in Corinth. Well, he was out of Corinth there, but where he had worked so far in Corinth. Just to give a little background for those of you who may just be back here, the Apostle Paul has been working on a uh, dealing. He's been writing with things. A lot of things are happening. A lot of terrible things have happened. So he's been writing letters back and forth, trying to help this congregation that's had so many problems. And what they had a big problem was, we remember, if you remember last week and you're here, that there was a lawsuit between two Christian brothers, two guys who were in the same church who were duking it out. And he said, you know what? There's something wrong here. The very fact that you would go to a lawsuit about this in the very thing where people look what's going on, he said, what a terrible thing that is. And he said, isn't there anyone capable here among like your elders who could judge this thing? And obviously he's saying, yes, they could, but you're not. And why are you not doing that? And he went on into a very, very tough section that you may remember from last week, where he talks about the fact when people come to faith in Christ, it changes people. We have an American culture that says, hey, as long as you just go down there and shake the preacher's hand or say you wrote a card or you said a prayer, that's it, man. I'm bulletproof. I can now do anything I want. It doesn't really matter. It's like, whoa, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a transformation of what God does when we come to know him by faith. And so what has happened in this passage, as you notice, he, he writes here in this passage, he says, don't you get it? The unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. In other words, he believes, like I think we ought to believe, that the gospel changes the lives of people. 
Now, we don't want to be, you know, fruit people going out and trying to look at everybody's fruit and see what they're doing. But we ought to have a sense of saying, wait a minute, if you came to Christ 60 years ago and you've never been to a church since and you have no prayer, in, like, are you sure you're a believer? Because the gospel truly changes the lives of people. And so he talks in that passage how important it is. And then he goes on, he talks, says, remember what's going on here? He said, you are not your own. We all say, of course we are. We have freedom. We're by ourselves. He said, no, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. And he reminds us again, all that we have in Christ is because of what Christ has done for us and, and what we have in forgiveness. So right now, as we go through the section in 1 Corinthians, we're about the halfway point in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be picking up our reading here. And what we want to do is we're going to be going through some interesting passages. But I want to give you this kind of overarching idea of what is going on here. Two things that are here that I think would be helpful, that will help us in this passage. The two things are this. Try to, we think, go through this passage. First of all, the Apostle Paul seems to believe that the coming, that the coming of Christ is really near. Now, he had very good reasons for saying that. Jesus said that he was coming, but he made it very clear that he's not going to tell them when that's going to be. But his thought was, well, that's going to be near, maybe next week or two weeks or maybe maybe even next year. I can't imagine Paul thinking that it was going to be 2,000 years. And, of course, it could be more than that. We don't know. But he probably thought mostly likely that Christ is coming soon. So we ought to live in light of the fact that Christ is coming back. And if that's true, then that ought to change the way we live our lives. Now stop for a second, and if I said, okay, Dara, I found it from the Lord who told me Jesus is coming back tomorrow night. Would there be any change, anything that you might do between now and there? Would there? Not too much? Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> now some of you asked some of us. If we found out he's coming out tomorrow, coming back tomorrow, there's some of us like, uh, I think I got a few things I need to take care of here. See what's happening here? He's saying, listen, the return, Lord of Christ is coming quick. So, you know, we, we have to live in light of the fact that Christ is coming back. And that, I think he was right in that, but it was longer than he ever thought. There's a second thing that goes with this passage that's important. One is the return of Christ. The second one the present suffering and persecution that they're now experiencing. His point is, you know what? With all that's going on, with all the suffering we're going through, all the persecution we're having, we need to live a different way. And I'm going to have to ask you to really to understand what's going on here because this is a tough situation we're in right now. We're being persecuted terribly. Things are hard. The good news, Jesus is coming back. So those are the overarching ideas that you hear coming back again and again in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's an interesting passage, and sometimes it seems a little odd passage, but it's an important one. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But remember, Paul is responding to these letters that are going back and forth. This major one, he's been telling about the issues that are going on and the things they need to straighten out. And so what he starts off here is he starts writing about how do we get together as husbands and wives, as men and women, how do we, men and women, how do we respond to each other, deal with each other? Of course, these are the issues that we're still struggling with today, 2,000 years ago. And so what, Paul, so what Paul says is this. Now, about the things you wrote, and notice this one, this phrase, 
It's good for a man not to have relations with a woman. Okay, important to make one important thing here. That's not Paul's statement, okay? What's saying is Paul said about these things, and he's quoting what these people are saying in the church in Corinth. They're saying, and this is what we call asceticism, they're ascetics, they're saying, you know, we shouldn't have marriage, and you shouldn't have babies, and Jesus is coming back, so we just should have lived like godly lives, and, 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 and he's dealing with that group of saying, we don't need all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, he's dealing with the other group of saying, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ, we can do anything we want, man, we're free, aren't we, Paul? You told us we're free, right, right? And Paul's again going, oi vey, I got these over here that don't want marriage, don't want any baby have babies, and I got this group over here that they're doing everything. That's wrong. And he's dealing with both of these groups. And so he's saying, okay, I, I got to tell you about this stuff. Look what he says. About these things you wrote, you said, oh, it's good for a man not to have relations with a woman. And he said, but verse 2, he said, but, he's now responding to this, but because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. In other words, marriage is a good thing. Now, there'll be a lot of people in our culture today who say, why? Who cares? We don't need it anymore. Paul is saying marriage is a good thing. It's a gift from God. The fact as we read about like in Ephesians where it talks about Christ and, and uses that whole metaphor, the idea of the bride of Christ, all this beautiful stuff, it, it's important. And it goes back to the creation. God looked at man and woman and he said it was good. And it is good. And so he goes on to say, listen, you, you, this is a good relationship. And he says, listen, and this is kind of, Paul gets right down to the nitty-gritty. He says, listen, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. In other words, regular relationship between a man and wife in, in, in their marriage. And he said, and likewise, a wife to her husband. In other words, a mutual thing in their relationship. A wife does, and this could get, uh, I could see if I was a woman, I could get really bugged by this next statement. A wife does not have authority over her own body. Wow, you can see things coming, the look going up way up on this one. But notice what he's saying. He says, a wife does not have authority over her body. If she just stopped there, every woman in the room had good reasons to be mad about it. It's not what he said. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. But notice this important phrase, equally. Equally, a husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. In other words, there's, there's that going back and forth. He's saying the fact that we're committed to one another, husband and wife, it's not like you own me or I own you. It's we're together in the marriage that God has given us. And so in very practical ways, speaking to young couples or maybe older couples, whatever it is, what their relationship is like, but it's saying don't deprive one another. You ought to expect to be having regular relationships as husband and wife. And he says, when you, he says, when you do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. And Paul is so practical here, again, saying that's, that ought to be the norm. Remember, he'd been working for a year and a half in Corinth. Corinth was sin city. There was all this sin all around him. And he's trying to help these people to understand, saying, I know the pagans are living like this terrible way all around you. That's not for you. Your husband, wife, when you're married, you stay together, the two of you. And so he's saying, when you two come together, he said, listen, okay, I'll give you an exception. If you want to take time off from that physical relationship for a while to commit yourself to prayer, that's a good thing to do. But, again, here he's so practical. But he said, then you better come together. 
Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, you know, this is not a normal thing for you to just get away from all this. He said, you got to be careful. And notice this phrase, which is unusual in verse 6. He said, I say this as a concession, not as a command. It's interesting here, Paul several times said, well, the Lord told me. Verse 10, by the way, he says this. The Lord told me to tell you. Here he's saying, mm, I, you know, the Lord didn't tell me this, but I say this as a concession. I think this is what we need to do. So notice what he says. Paul says, I wish that all people were just like me. That is, single, celibate. Again, remember I just said a few minutes ago that one of the big things that the Apostle Paul is thinking, one, Jesus is coming quick. Number two, he talked about the whole difference that we have there with the things that are happening. And so he talks about that we have, he said, you know, I really believe it's coming, so we have to live in light of that. He says, I wish that all people were just like me, but, and I appreciate he says, each one has his own gift from God. One has this, and that has another. A couple chapters, I think it's four down from here, he's going to talk more about spiritual gifts. But he says, you know, I realize some people the gift. Paul says, I have the gift of being able to live a celibate kind of life as a man, and I can do okay with that by God's grace. He's saying, that's okay. I wish you guys could do that too, but a lot of you can't, and I understand that. And he says, but each should have his own gift from God, one of this and that another. Now, I have to admit, when I was at Dallas Seminary, I was praying, God, don't give me the gift of celibacy. God, don't give me the gift of celibacy. Uh, uh, and it didn't, so thankful for that, six children later. Praying, and he says, and he basically saying, he's saying, pray, he's, we are praying that we won't have the spiritual gift, but he said, it is important. And again, like I told you before, I had a friend of mine who I was groomed with for one semester who said, I believe God's given me that same gift that the Apostle Paul has. I don't feel like any need to be buried. I feel like it's an impediment for me from doing what God's called me to do. I said, well, fine, you know, Lord bless you. And then about two years later, he called me and asked me to come to his wedding. So, okay, <laughs> I'm okay with that. That's fine, Okay. But notice what he says here in verse 9. He goes, I say to the unmarried and to the widows. And this is very interesting. For those who haven't married and for those that are widows, he said, you know, it's good for them to remain as they are. This is going to be a theme that comes through this entire section. This idea of, you know what, as much as you can, stay where you're at. Stay where you're at in terms of maybe your location and what your lifestyle is. He doesn't like this idea of moving around all the time. Of course, we say that in America more and more. But he's saying, stay where you're at. He said, I say to the unmarried and to widows, you know, it's good for them if they remain as I am, celibate. But if they don't have self-control, well, they should marry. There's no reason why you shouldn't do that. They should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with desire. So we'd rather have that than you with the craziness all around you in this culture. Get married. That'd be good. Let God do that and lead you in that way. And then he goes in verse 10, he says, now here's a command. He says, I command the married. That's speaking to some of us in this room as well. I command to the married, not, excuse me, not I, but the Lord. In other words, I'm getting this straight from the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband's not to leave his wife. Again, it's the idea of saying marriage is permanent in God's eyes. We have it in Mark chapter 10, I believe it is, where he makes that absolutely clear. Now, I understand there's been all kinds of things that happen. There's people who go through things that were, seem to be exceptions, and I know that happens in the life of the congregation in the church. But he's saying permanence in marriage is what God is asking for his people. 
notice what he goes on. He said, but I, he says, not the Lord. Again, I didn't get this one directly for the Lord, but he said, I, but not I, but the Lord says to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Now, what's interesting, in that culture, there's probably more women than men in the church. And it could be a guy saying, you know what? My wife, you know, she's not a Christian. She's pagan in that sense. And I really would love to rather have just maybe a Christian wife, and I'm just going to dump her. And he's saying, no way. He said, he said, if any brother has an unbelieving wife, and she's willing to live with him. She doesn't want to have a divorce. He said, if she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Which is interesting, because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, she's, you know, she's a pagan. You don't want to be married to her. He said, you're already married to her. Stay with her. And he's going to go on if you notice this. Also, he says, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. And then verse 14 is odd but important. For the unbelieving husband is, and I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they use the phrase, the husband is set apart. Other translations make it a little bit different. But the idea, that has the idea, hagios is the verb there, hagiago, it's the idea of holiness, it's the idea of separateness, it's the idea of that is that which is brought together from God. And it seems kind of strange. It says, for the unbelieving husband is set apart from God by the wife. It's kind of like the wife's belief seems to spread out over the pagan husband, which is an unusual thing you see in the New Testament, but it's there. And he said, for God by the wife and the unbelieving wife is set apart from God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they're set apart from God. It's an interesting thing that how God could work through one part in the family relationship, but would have an impact upon the entire family. Now, notice if you would, but now he comes back and say, but what if you're married to a person who's not a Christian? Well, sorry. All right, let's deal with that. He said, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. He said, I understand if they want to go, let them go. God has called you to live in peace. By the way, these couple verses, this little section here, the church for almost 2,000 years has struggled deeply with how do we apply that? What do we do about this happens? We have this thing that happens. This is still going on today. But what we know what God is doing is everything again to keep people together not apart. And so he says, for you, wife, he said, how do you know whether you're, you will save your husband? In other words, maybe your way, the way that you live your life is going to bring your husband to that. And I've met a number of women. I know in a Bible study I'm in, I've taught for years, I've had several women said, you know, my husband was, you know, he was a raw pagan when we got married. And I probably shouldn't have married them that way. But thank God, over seven years, this one lady told me, of trying to live the Christian life, encouraging him, bringing him, dragging him to church, he suddenly came to the Lord, and boy, the Lord has used him in a great way. And so Paul's saying, listen, oh, how do you know whether you might save your husband by your way you live your life, where they see Christ in you? He said, they might save your husband or you husband. How do you know whether you might save your wife? You're thinking, how can I dump her? He's saying, how can you stay with her and show her what Christ looks like? And so Paul is getting right down to the gritty to talk about these issues. And he says, however, each one must live his life in the situation which the Lord assigned him. Again, Paul has this thing about keeping where you're at in the station you're at. This is what I command in all the churches. As much as you can, stay stable where you're at and what you're doing. 
He said, was anybody circumcised when he was called? Well, he shouldn't undo it. I'll leave the, the medical part for you to deal with, but it's saying, don't make any changes there. There's no necessity of doing that. Was anyone called as uncircumcised? Well, he should not get circumcised. By the way, that is an amazing phrase. This is one of the strange, well, not strange, this is one of the important phrases in 1 Corinthians. Paul is a Jew's Jew. I'm using that in the best sense of the term. He is a godly Jewish man who has come to faith in Jesus as his Messiah and Lord. And he makes a statement like this in verse 19 that a Jewish person who's not a believer goes, oh, well, what did you say? So I'll say it for you again. Circumcision doesn't matter, and uncircumcision doesn't matter. But keeping God's commandment does. A Jewish group would say, you are gone right over the cliff. You're a nutcase. We all know what this is all about because we know the scriptures tell us. Paul's saying, listen, circumcision doesn't matter. And he's saying, really? Really? You're really, you really saying? Are you teaching people this, Paul? Paul says, yes, it is. He goes back and go all They could say to him, Paul, you're still reading your scriptures, aren't you, Paul? I am. Of course I am. He says, what does it say in Genesis chapter 17? What did God tell Abraham? God told them, as for you, you and your offspring after you and throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. Notice these words. This is my covenant which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. If they're not, they're not part of the God's family. And to have a person like Paul who's been teaching that all those years to say, you know what, it doesn't matter. He's saying this is a man whose life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not overthrowing the Old Testament law, but he is giving the new understanding as it came from the word of Jesus. And he's saying, you know what? It's a new era. We're in the new covenant, and it's transformed by what God has told them. And so Paul comes back to this idea and said, were you, not, were you called when you were a slave? He said, it shouldn't be a concern to you. Well, maybe the slave is saying, yeah, well, not maybe to you because you get to walk around and do what you want. I can't. But he's saying, were you called to be a slave? Well, it shouldn't be a concern to you. But notice this, but if you get, become free, by all means, take the opportunity. In other words, saying, if, okay, maybe you're a slave. Be the best slave you can and do what you can and, and share the gospel. Saying, okay, but if you get that chance, take it. He's not saying go kill your master and things will be good. His point is maybe you could work you know, during the evenings and get some money. Maybe he'll let you free. And so he's saying, again, be stable. Stay where you're at. For he who's called by the Lord is a slave of the Lord's freedmen. Now, we're all committed to him if we're believers. Likewise, he who's called a free man is Christ's slave. And then this beautiful phrase, you were bought at a price. Don't become a slave of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. And then he says, here's some specific things I want to tell you. First of all, he said about virgins. We think of this in terms of one thing. Their idea is more the idea of young women who are not married. His point about virgins, you know, and he's so honest about this. I have no command from the Lord. The Lord didn't whisper in my ear or send anything, just saying. But he says, okay, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's, worthy, by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I do have something to say I'd like you to listen to. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. 
the fact that maybe you just ought not to get married because Jesus is coming any moment. You ought to keep yourself celibate and ready to go to do whatever it needs uh, to serve the Lord. Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It's fine for a man to stay as he is. But he said, what about if you are bound to a wife? Well, Jesus is coming soon. Well, maybe I ought to dump her so I can serve the Lord. He goes, no way. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. If you're loose from a wife, don't seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. And then he tells you, see again how that idea that he believes about how Christ is coming soon. He said, if virgin marries, she is not sinned. He said, but such people are going to have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Once again, he comes back to that idea of Christ coming soon and the suffering that we're experiencing. And he's saying, you know, in light of the fact that they're coming in and taking your children away and they're burning grandpa at the stake, maybe this is not a good time for you to get married. And he said, I'm concerned for you. And again, this is now almost 2,000 years ago, but the point he's saying still goes with us. And so as I say this, brothers, the time is limited. Here's again that idea. Time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as those that do not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Again, Jesus is coming back. Suffering is awful. Maybe we have to just think of ourselves in that way and how we're going to serve the Lord. And he says, and those who have this world though they do not make full use of it, for the world, and here's this great phrase, for the world in its current form is passing away. And he says, but I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of his Lord, uh, 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 of his Lord and how he may please him. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, which he should be. And he's divided. But the unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. In other words, she's much more free to be able to do the things that need to be done in the midst of all the struggles. So that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of her husband, of the world, of how she may please her husband. Now, I'm not saying this for, for your own benefit. They say, I'm, they say, now I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because what's proper, so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Then he goes back to, but, but if any man thinks that he's acting improperly towards his virgin, like he's not gotten the ring, we haven't gotten officially married, he said, but if any man thinks he's acting improperly towards his wife, well, if she's past marriageable age and so must be, well, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning if they get married. His point just keeps going back. I think it'd be good in light of what's happening and the coming, coming of Christ, it'd be better if you were free to be able to do what needs to be done for the gospel. But if you feel like you need to marry, then go ahead and do it, because marriage is in God's eyes. But he who stands firm in his heart, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, he's decided in his heart to keep his own virgin, will do well. So then he who marries with virgin does well, but he who doesn't marry does even better. In other words, neither one of these is wrong. But you have to decide what God has chosen for asking for you to do. So the wife is bound as long as her husband's living, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married. By the way, that's very unusual in some of the times. A lot of times in other cultures, you couldn't do that. But she could be married to anyone she wanted to in the Lord. Not a, not a pagan. Needs to be a believer. But she's happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Now, Paul, again, is dealing with issues that now we are still dealing with almost 2,000 years ago. 
But the big picture is still there. God has called men and women together. But we know that God calls people, men and women, and Christians in other areas as well. When we think about this passage, we want to bring it to where we're at. What do we deal about it today? What is it that God's asking us from this? Well, for one thing, Paul certainly believes that singleness is a, a virtue. It's a good thing. And there are times when God calls people to do that. Uh, when I was a child, um, I remembered we had, well, at our church, there were two women that we saw often. They, they visited our church. And I can't remember if it was Colum where it was, in Columbia or somewhere, somewhere out in the jungle. These two women went into the deep part of the jungle. There were two women who were, uh, they were ter terrific, unbelievable women, who went into this place where there was a group of people who they had no written language. They were like headhunters. They killed most white people who tried to get near them. And they walked a long way into this place in the jungle. And they just showed up, said, hi, we're here. And we'd like to tell you about Jesus with all this fear of like, you know, they're going to cut our heads off. But they found out that these people, particularly the men, had no fear of the women. If two guys had come in, it had been a battle. But God gave them the opportunity over years to get to know their language, to get it into a written thing for them, and to be able to share the gospel with them. And God used them in a great way. And their point was, you know what? We would not have had this opportunity if we hadn't taken this idea, the fact that we need to be celibate in this, and that God has given us the strength to do it. And so you can see, singleness is a, is a, can be a virtue if that's what God has for you. We've gotten to the time, sometimes it gets to the point saying, well, everybody has to be married. No, not necessarily. You have to seek God's wisdom and what he would want for you. But that's certainly a positive thing to do for singleness. The other thing is, what about marriage today? Well, as you know, things are not great. The statistics are discouraging and they're getting worse. In 1960, 72% of Americans were married. Now, 50% are married and it's declining rapidly. In fact, it's getting even worse. Divorce rate has doubled in 40 years. And if you want to know who's the one that's going to suffer from this, it's the children. Mom's got a boy, has a husband, but they divorced, and she's got a boyfriend, and then that boyfriend's gone, then there's another one, and all the things that these children go through. Our culture in the issue of marriage and these things is doing disaster to a lot of people. You can go to talk to some of these kids who've, now wait a minute, my, son, my mom's third husband was a really nice guy, but the second guy that she did, you know, is like, really? There's a number of us in here that have children or grown children. And how important it is to let them know that marriage is a good thing from God. And it's important in God's eyes because the stability that a family can bring, a husband and wife, can have such an impact in the life of a child, even as they grow up. And those that don't, we can see it in our culture. We can see it in our schools of what is happening in a culture where the idea of mom and dad are committing themselves to each other and staying together in spite of the hard times, in spite of the struggles. There's not a married couple in this room that hasn't had marital issues, some small, some major. But God keeps putting us in this opportunity of saying, you know what, he does drive you crazy, doesn't he? Well, maybe you drive him crazy also. But maybe God is bigger than our own problems. 
And maybe God has brought you into this situation to change you, not her or not him, and they're going the other way. Maybe God wants to use you to have an impact on the life of each other. It's interesting, the book of Ephesians, we'll close with this. He makes this beautiful point. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for her, just as Christ does for the church, since we're members of his body. And then he quotes, going back to creation, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Your children need to learn that. Your grandchildren need to hear it. The culture may be going down like a cesspool, but God is still calling men and women of faith to live together in harmony in, by God's grace. Tim, Tim Keller, who I appreciate so much, he said this, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and, one, and wonderful at once. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel changes people. The God's gospel strengthens people to live together as husband and wife in a way that brings glory to God, joy to those who live together as husband and wife, and provides for children to have an opportunity to see what it's like that a mom and dad love each other deeply and love Jesus Christ passionately. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it teaches. Almost 2,000 years, and yet we're still dealing with these things, important things that the Apostle Paul has given us. Lord, would you be with us and help us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table would you help us and encourage us and strengthen us to turn our hearts to you? We pray this in Jesus' name.